It was a typical Thursday. Well, that's not exactly correct. It, it looked like a typical Thursday. For you, that might be you've gone to school in the hallway by the lockers. People are laughing and talking, yucking it up, talking about what went on, thinking about what's going on in school today, talking about the weekend. But, but you, in just a few minutes, you're going to the counselor's office, and you have a makeup test. It's a very important makeup test that is super important, and you have to do well on this. And so everybody else, yeah, for you, it's not a typical Thursday. Or maybe you're pulling out of the driveway in your car, and the window's down because it's a nice spring day, and you hear the birds chirping, and you see the trees with their uh, flowers or their uh, leaves coming out, and you, you smell the moist spring air, and you're on your way, though, to the hospital because you're going to have a surgery that you hope is going to save your life. So for you, it's, it's not a typical Thursday. It was the kind of Thursday where everything is normal, for everyone else but you, Jesus. It is going to be a different Thursday from you than any you have ever experienced before. On Thursday evening, Jesus is with his 12 disciples and they are going to a room that's already been set up for the Passover. And he and his 12 friends are in there celebrating the Passover meal. And at one point in the, in the festivities of the evening, Jesus pushes away from the, the, the low table. And he gets a basin of water and a towel. And he begins going around the table. And he washes all the feet of all the disciples, every last one of them. And in that time as he's washing their feet, he has to wash the feet of Judas, who in less than six hours' time is going to be betraying Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane by giving him a kiss on the cheek. Do you, do you think Jesus could not possibly know that? Of course he knew that. Would you would you serve someone that you knew was going to betray you? Would you serve someone that has already betrayed you? Before too long, Judas leaves and the Passover meal continues and then it finishes and Jesus says a number of things to his disciples and Jesus and the 11 of them leave the room where they are and walk about a mile to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the western hillside of the Mount of Olives. And when they get there, if you had known Jesus and you had spent any time with him at all, when you saw him in route, or when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, you could see on his face that he was distressed. He was troubled. 
because he knew. And so he asked his 11 disciples to come with him and to pray. They'd been there before, and so he asked them to, you know, have a, have a seat, guys, and pray. And then he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he goes a distance away, and he says, you guys wait here. And then he goes in a little farther away. He says, pray. So he goes away, and he prays, and he comes back several minutes, an hour later, and Peter, James, and John, they're asleep. He wakes him up, says, can't you pray with me? And so he goes away again comes back, they're asleep. He goes away again, comes back, and for the third time, they're asleep. But this time, it's different because coming into the garden is Judas leading an entourage who is going to arrest Jesus. And Judas comes up to Jesus, says, hello, master, and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And the soldiers that are with Judas grab Jesus and hold him. Now, Peter, who is not lacking stuff to do, typically, grabs his sword and intends to take somebody's heads off, head off, but this guy ducks, and he winds up taking off this guy's ear. And Jesus, who's being held by the soldiers, wrenches free with one hand, reaches over where the guy's on the ground, touches the guy right where his ear was, and then it is, there. And so the disciples... See, this is their chance, and they leave. They, they scatter. They, they bail. They go. They go. They're gone. You've never had friends bail on you, have you? Was your first thought when those friends left you, God, would you forgive my friends? Jesus was taken to the home of Caiaphas. He is the high priest, the top dog in the Jewish religion. And Caiaphas is actually not there at the time because he's out gathering the other rulers to come in so they can have this council and they can make a decision about Jesus. So Annas, who was a high priest, is there. And so he begins grilling Jesus, asking him all sorts of questions. And then one of the temple guards who is sent by Jesus just hauls off and smacks him. Annas just totally ignores it, says nothing at all about the guy smacking Jesus. Caiaphas comes back, gathers all the people together. Jesus is escorted up. In, where, where Caiaphas is, it's, it's basically a compound of sorts. It's a rather elaborate area. There's a courtyard, and then Jesus is taken up into the courtroom where Caiaphas has assembled the Jewish leaders. So when they are there, they discuss and ask Jesus questions. He's framed. The people lie about him, and, and Jesus is sentenced to death. Nothing fair about this at all. In fact, if you were going to be doing something legal at night, in the Jewish community, it was illegal. Legal stuff performed at night is illegal. All of it was with Jesus. So while Caiaphas and all those people have done this very unfair thing to him, do you remember a time when you've been treated unfairly? Maybe it was with your family. Maybe it's a brother or sister. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at work. 
was your first thought when you were treated unfairly, God, would you please forgive those people that have treated me unfairly? Jesus has been sentenced to die. It is still dark, single-digit numbers in the morning. And so there's nothing for the soldiers to do except they decide they're going to have a little fun with Jesus. And so they begin spitting on him. They slap him. They punch him. They hit him. They play a game that has something to do with the blindfold. They blindfold him, bam, and hit him. They take the blindfold off and say, okay, prophet, who hit you? Him, me, or this other guy? Bam. Who hit you, prophet? Tell us. Who was it? Somebody, who was it? We don't know how long this went on, but it, it went on for a while. Now, while this is happening upstairs in this courtroom that Caiaphas has, downstairs in the courtyard, court, courtyard it's Peter, the guy with the sword and the ear thing, you know? So while he is outside downstairs, someone comes up to him and says, you were with that guy. You, you, were, you were with him. Uh, I know. Peter says, no, I wasn't. Oh, no, 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 not I. Later on, somebody else saw Peter said, you, you, were, you were with him. I know you were. The way you talk gives it, you were with him. Two times, Jesus has been denied by Peter. It's getting near dawn, and Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders are going to take Jesus to an area near the temple. They're going to officially pronounce sentence on him. And so they're escorting Jesus out of the courtroom upstairs down this outside set of steps. By this time, someone else comes up to Peter and says, you were with him. I know you were. And then Peter says, I have no idea who you were talking about. I have never even seen the man. And as Jesus is coming down the stairs and he takes one more step, the rooster crows for the second time and he looks over and there's Peter. And he makes eye contact with Peter at that time precise moment and Peter remembers what Jesus had said earlier that evening that before the rooster crows two times you are going to deny knowing me three times and Peter left and went the religious leaders take well let's do this have you ever had a super close friend turn on you? Things you've shared with them that you've shared with no one else. They know you like no one else. When they turned on you, was your first thought, God, I love this person. Even what they've said, would you forgive them? Caiaphas and his men take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. They want Pilate to kill Jesus because the Jews are not allowed to do stuff like that. Pilate questions Jesus, finds no reason for Jesus to die. They're still wanting to kill him. Pilate says, 
in his course of conversation with Jesus, he's found out that Jesus did a lot of his work during three years up in Galilee, which is the territory that Herod is over. So he says, I'll send him to Herod. He sends him up to Herod. Herod's wanted to see Jesus for a long time. Herod asked Jesus all sorts of questions. Jesus says absolutely nothing. Not a word. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate is thinking, I don't want to kill him because he's done nothing wrong. So if I scourge him, then maybe the Jews, when I present him to them, they're going to see that they're going to feel sorry for him. They're not going to want to kill him. And so Pilate has him scourged. Now, the Bible talks about just like that. Pilate has him scourged, and it moves on. It's like he's outside cooking burgers on his grill, and then he went inside and served him. That's all it says about scourging. It's like nothing happened. But the fact of the matter is scourging is something you don't forget if you live. And attached to a handle are leather strips, six, eight, and nine of them. And on the end of these strips, you have fragments of metal and, and pieces of jagged lamb's bone attached. And the, the person who's to be beat in this case is Jesus. And so he is taken to a pole or something, a rock, whatever, and he is stripped naked and he's put over this thing or tied to it to where his back is really tight. And so the Roman soldier or soldiers who have the scourge or scourges began taking turns and whipping Jesus. How many times we don't know, but what happens is those fragments of bone and those pieces of metal catch the flesh and tear it. And blood starts to flow and your skin is ripped to shreds. And sometimes, depending on how long or how hard this is done, then muscle and bones and organs can be exposed. Many men died when they were scourged, but Jesus did not. When the scourging was over, the Roman soldiers put a crown of thorns, about an inch long crown of thorns, crammed it on his head, put a purple robe on him. In that condition, he was taken back to Pilate. Pilate showed Jesus to the Jewish leaders. They wanted him crucified. Pilate knew he could not get out of it. In a matter of minutes, Jesus was attempting to carry his cross. He tried a few times, but he couldn't because he's so weak. And so the Roman guards, they, they got a by, bystander to come out of the crowd and carry the cross. And so Jesus, the man carrying the cross, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers and bystanders, followed this group up the hill called Calvary. And there on the cross, <coughs> five to seven inch nails were put in Jesus' wrist. Five to seven inch spikes were put in Jesus' feet. He's hung on the cross. This is the first of seven things that Jesus says during the six hours he is on the cross. Could you have said this? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Does Jesus pray for his pain to end? No. Is Jesus angry with the Roman soldiers? We can't find that anywhere in Scripture that he is. The people that come by and spit on him, when they say things about him and they accuse him of things, 
Does he lash out at them? He does not. Not at all. Being cursed, Jesus blessed. Being hated, Jesus loved. Being tortured and killed, Jesus offered life. Being accused, Jesus became the defender for those accusers. Many things could have been said by Jesus, but Jesus' first words from the cross were to pray for his tormentors. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Colossians 2, 13-15 When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hey, Robin and I are going to go ahead and finish the seven sayings of the cross just one at a time. So if you guys need to get a drink, go ahead. Not really. The sixth saying is the last one we'll cover today. In John 19.30, he records Jesus' words. This is the sixth saying from the cross. And he says, it is finished. We're not going to cover everything that it is finished could mean. Because it could mean so much. But we are going to cover four specifics. When Jesus declares it is finished, he doesn't mean, whew, all that suffering is finally over for me, right? Jesus never was self-centered. He came to serve, right? But what it does mean is that our separation from God, from our sin, is finished. The power of sin in our lives is finished. Satan's unlimited power in his reign of terror in our lives is finished, and what? Death? Death's power is finished because of the arrival of a new king, Jesus. So sin is defeated. It's finished. Uh, sins of ours are a debt against God. And that debt is now finished. When Jesus says it is finished from the cross, of course he's not 
speaking English, right? So the, the word translated to us as it is finished is tetelestai, and it means like to fulfill or to complete or to finish, but it's also like an accounting term that means paid in full. Well, what do we owe, you might ask? Paul puts it this way to the Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. So God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So our debt was paid by Jesus when he declares it is finished. He is declaring our debt is completely paid in full by Jesus. Tetelestai, it is finished. Our punishment for our sins, we deserve a punishment, right? Our punishment is also taken by Jesus. That is the atonement that Paul writes about. Paul puts it this way to the Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us. It condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Sin was defeated on the cross. Our debt was finished. Has anyone else ever had a debt canceled? I, I have. I have had a debt canceled. Not one of those things you want to wait till Easter Sunday to admit, but I can make it sound holy, okay? Um, so it was, it was this kind of debt where you have bank fees, um, and, and it was on a savings account, so it sounds a little less terrible. It, we won't talk about the mob stuff, right? Uh, those debts never get canceled, right? But imagine, if you will, bank debt um, that I had fees incurred because my balance went below what it was supposed to on a savings account. Because guess what? I took money out of my savings account, right? And so then I got these fees all these months, and I'm thinking, oh, man, this is not how savings accounts should work. So I call the bank and just beg for mercy, and they credit my account. Yes, my debt is paid. Now, what are the chances, what are the chances that I can just go on doing that? Are they going to keep forgiving that debt? Are they going to keep tetelestying, keep finishing my debt every time I call? Any chance? There's no chance, right? But the good news today for us because of Christ's resurrection and his sixth statement on the cross, it is finished. Our sin debt is paid because of his work on the cross. It is finished. So our sin debt is paid and the power of sin in our lives is also now finished. In Romans 6, Paul writes, when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives to the glory of God. So you also, all right, we've got some responsibility. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do we live in the power of the resurrection through Christ Jesus, as though our sin debt is paid, and as though sin has no more power over us. Do we live that way, friends? Do we live freely with the freedom that comes with our debt paid? 
and the power of sin broken. Some of you may be like approaching that magical age of 16. Some of you parents are terrified and you're not thinking this means freedom, but it does. And some of you remember turning 16 and how much freedom that brought with it. And, and those of you that are just about to turn 16, you are so looking forward to that freedom when you're finally going to leave your house, but not on your bike, right? Or not with an aunt, an uncle, or a grandparent. But you're going to leave that house in a car because you got the driver's license, right? You're going to leave that house and you're going to go any way you want to go straight to the store and get milk for the family, right? That's what you're going to do, I'm telling you. Okay, but whenever I got my license first, and you guys may remember, when you first got your license, the first sorts of things you wanted to do with that license, maybe you wanted to go get ice cream all on your own anytime you wanted. I really wanted to go develop some relationships that were important to me, one with a girl, and then a bunch of other relationships with all my friends, and we would play like basketball all over town, anywhere we could find a gym where the door wasn't locked. And anywhere that there was a light on a pole that was shining at night and we could still play basketball together. Are we using our freedom that we have from the power of sin to pursue a relationship with Christ? To pursue relationships with others that build up our relationship with Christ? Or are we just trampling on the resurrection power of the freedom that we now have? So... I'm asking you today, friends, do you live in the power of the resurrection in a way that brings you closer to Christ? In a way that displays the power of the cross, the power of Christ's death over sin, our debt and over sin, the power it holds in our lives. When Jesus declares it is finished or tetelestai, he's declaring that Satan is defeated. Our third point, we're, declare, we're hearing Jesus declare it is finished Satan is defeated. John writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ more or less put Satan on a leash. More or less. You say, but pastor, and I say, pastor's off the stage, right? Just call me Chris, okay? So Chris... Are you sure about that? Because we're all still tempted, right? We're all still tempted by Satan. But he had a great power that he no longer has. Remember in the garden when he tempted Adam and Eve and he said, Hey, I want you guys to rebel in sin with me against God. Well, that power has now been limited. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer indebted to sin. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're no longer victims of Satan's reign of terror because he's on a leash. Paul puts it this way to the Ephesians. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to, used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. To the Colossians, he writes, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Is the devil still powerful? Yes. But his reign of terror is over. He is on a leash. He is defeated. He is, you could say, he is sentenced, but he is not yet serving his term. Okay? Sentenced, not yet serving. All right? When... when when King Jesus is about to ascend, okay, just 
Imagine King Jesus about to ascend. He's giving his disciples his marching orders. It's why we gather here. It's why we go out from here. But he says, he says, go and make, uh, already audience participation time. If you know, he says, go into all the nations and make, starts with a D, rhymes with disciples. That's right. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he bases all of that instruction on a foundation. Does anybody remember that foundation? All, uh, you can say it with me, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? So Jesus now has all authority. Thereby, Satan's power is now limited, okay? So sentenced, not yet serving, but his reign of terror is finished. All right, it is finished means our sin debt is paid. It is finished means the power of sin is no longer necessarily operative in our lives. And it is finished means that Satan's power is no longer unlimited as a reign of terror under which we just have to suffer. And finally, it is finished means the power of death is finished. The power of death is defeated. The writer of Hebrews says, since the children have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free all of those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Uh, we have a brother, if you're a follower in Christ, we have a brother named Nikolai. Nikolai was born and grew up in the area of Crimea. You'll remember that Russia just took that over before they took over the areas of Ukraine they're in now. But some years back during the Sochi Olympics, right, they invaded and took over Crimea, which is where Nikolai is from. Now, interesting thing about uh, Crimea, the people who weren't necessarily like, woo, I can't wait to have Putin be my king, right, they fled. And if they had lots of money, they went to like Kiev or like far west Ukraine. And if they had like some money, they went to like middle Ukraine. But if they were destitute, if they were disabled, if they were elderly, if they were marginalized in any way in society, not upwardly or even mildly mobile, those people then moved over to, like, Mariupol. Okay, like, from, like, Lanesville to Corridon, right? Like, from Louisville to Hurstbourne, okay? They couldn't go far because they can't go far, right? They just, they can't. And so the shelling starts in Mariupol, right? And the humanitarian corridors, shelling, and apartments, shelling, right? And Nikolai decides that the power of death is finished. It's no longer operative in his life. So he's driving food and water into brothers and sisters and those that don't even know Jesus in the city of Mariupol until his death. Because death has no power over him, right? Does, not, does Paul say, does he not say, to me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain that's right church we are no longer under the power of death that is the way Nikolai lived that is the way we can live and I don't have any bombs anywhere for you to go like travel through but we can live as though we don't have to fear death any longer the power of death is finished Jesus resurrection means that Jesus is who he says he is he is the Lord. He is the Son of God. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, He was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection means that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised 
the anointed one, writer of Acts. Luke says, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's the long-awaited, prophesied about one. He's the promised one. He's the one in whom all of Israel had put their hope. Right? He's the one who's supposed to save us from our sin, restore us to God. That is Jesus. His resurrection means we, like Nikolai, we share in a guarantee of everlasting life, and thereby, in the face of death, we have hope. The resurrection means that when the grave is open and you are laying a loved one to rest, if they have trusted Christ, we have, say it with me, church, we have hope, right? When you are laying a brother or sister to rest, we know, and we say, the pastor says, you might say it with them, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting, right? Because it is broken by Jesus' resurrection. The power of the cross breaks the power of death. Jesus' words in John, because I live, you also will live, okay? And he's his best, not his best, but his friend Lazarus dies. And he's talking to Lazarus' sisters, okay? So if you're talking to a friend, close friend, and you're talking to their family members, and you have to give them words of comfort, right? You might say, it's going to pass, or I'm going to be here with you through it, right? But what does Jesus say? What does he say to Mary, church? What does he say? Okay, I'm going to read the words to you. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I want you to read this with me, the rest of this with me. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. The resurrection means that we have a guarantee of everlasting life. We have hope in the face of death. Finally, the resurrection means we're justified. The resurrection means we're justified. Paul writes this to the Romans. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So justification is the canceling of our debt. We talked about that. It's the canceling of debt. But it's also something else that's very important, okay? We can't just have the cancellation of our debt because we're going to incur more debt, aren't we? Right? And so justification cancels our debt. But it's also the crediting to our account of righteousness. Now, what does Paul say your righteousness is like? It's hard to say this in church, but he says it, okay? He says rags, and that's the church thing to say, right? It's minstrel rags, friends. It's filth, right? That's what our righteousness is. So we need a different righteousness. And the resurrection means that we are credited with Jesus Christ's righteousness. Paul says it this way to the Galatians. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God. Through faith, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have what? Church, I want you to read this with me. All of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, maybe you didn't have a little boy. Maybe you're like an uncle. Maybe you're a grandpa. Maybe you're a dad of a little boy. I don't know. But in our basement, we used to have these totes, and they had Halloween costumes in them, and they were not princesses, okay? Not until we had grades later. But they were little Halloween costumes of, like, little Hulk and little Spider-Man and little Batman and little Superman. And you know what happens when those costumes come out, right? You know what happens. They put that costume on. And what do they become? I mean, dads, you know, right? 
you know if Batman's coming out of the basement and he hits you with a bat punch, are you going to stand there and be invincible? I mean, if you've got an Iron Man suit on, maybe, but you don't. I'm guessing if you're like me, you don't have a suit on. And Batman just hit you, and you what? You fall down, right? Now, what if you've got little girls or granddaughters or nieces, and they go to the basement, and they pull out the princess dress? I'll tell you what happens at, at, at my house. Two things happen. Um, one thing that happens currently with our girls is they put on the princess dress, and then you know the little ring doorbell? I, I hit answer that thing every time because I can see it half the time I see a princess dress walking out the door, and there's this motion going on. And there's dancing and they're singing because they become a princess, right? And dads and moms, if you are invited to tea by a little princess in a princess dress, do you not pick up that tea and put out that painting, right? Because we behave as though they are who they are clothed as, right? So friends, are you, are you today, are you clothed in Christ? And if you're clothed in Christ, if we are clothed in Christ, are we really, are we really living new lives? Are you living a new life that is full of the resurrection power and filled with resurrection purpose to live a new life in Christ? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same power the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. So are you being honest with yourself today? Are you being honest with the Lord God today? Are you currently living a new life a new life that is filled with the freedom that comes only in a relationship with Jesus. Do we live with the assurance given by Christ's work on the cross that we are no longer under the power of sin? We're no longer in the debt of sin. We're no longer suffering under the death threat or the threat of Satan, but we're living and the power of Christ at work in us. Do we live forgiving those around us? Do we live blessing those who curse us? We have hope in a Savior who by his power clothes us in his righteousness. Today, if you don't live in that hope because you've never accepted the offer of Christ, you've never accepted his righteousness as your own, maybe you veered off track because you bought a lie that Satan fed. We've all been there, every one of us, and we look real shiny and spiffy today, 
But God knows our hearts. And he knows that if we've gone off track because we bought a little lie, that it's time to come back. It's time to say, I need the righteousness of Christ. And I repent. Today, if you have to make a decision like that, following worship, we invite you to join us in the Next Steps booth in the lobby. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the great gift of the righteousness of Christ. We're grateful that by His work on the cross, You've canceled our sin debt. You've undone the power of sin and death and Satan. Father God, we know that His resurrection is a victory that we get to share because you adopt us into your family when we claim you as our king as well as our savior. Father, we pray today that you would embolden us, that you would empower us to live clothed in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.